Hello, and welcome back to Wilderness Medicine Updates, the show for providers at the edges. I'm your host, Patrick Fink. Believe it or not, after an epic winter, we're finally winding down into spring, and summer is just around the corner. And you know what that means. At least, you know what that means if you live in the West, and that's wildfires. So that's today's topic. We're going to delve into wildfire smoke and its effects on health, what we need to do about it, and whether staying inside is even a safe option for managing wildfire smoke. Today, we're going to talk about wildfire smoke. If you live in the western U.S., then you know that summer is the time of smoke. Increasingly, fires in California, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho become sources of wildfire smoke that can linger over the mountain west for days or weeks before becoming pushed out and diluted over the Great Plains. This is the unfortunate comeuppance of climate change meets outdated forestry, and for now, modeling suggests that it's here to stay for a decade or more. For those who have the option to remain indoors, these long periods of smokiness pose a question. Can I go outdoors safely? For those who must operate outdoors for their work and livelihood, the question becomes, what is this doing to me, and can I do anything to make my work safer? In this episode, I aim to answer some of the questions that I've had about wildfire smoke, with a strong bend towards the effect on active individuals like athletes, wildfire fighters, and other outdoor professionals. I was struck recently by a remarkably poorly researched article from the New York Times, which I'll link in the show notes that relied on quotes of expert opinion, used visible smoke as a criterion for concern, and that I suspect will lead the public astray. I hope to do a lot better here. We're going to walk through this question by question. Question 1. Why is wildfire smoke bad for you, and is it different from other forms of smoke or pollution? Wildfire smoke is a mix of particles of different sizes that arise from the incomplete combustion, that's burning, of organic materials like wood. This combustion also produces volatile compounds, like nitrogen oxides, that can combine with atmospheric elements to form other hazardous chemicals, like ozone. In addition to containing these combustion products from organic materials, Should fires move through populated areas, the smoke can also contain combustion products produced by burning plastics, rubbers, or other synthetic materials. While there are a tremendous variety of compounds and particles in wildfire smoke, the category that's most often measured is called PM2.5. PM2.5 is a blanket category of airborne particles whose diameter is smaller than 2.5 microns. That's really small. This category of particles is considered particularly hazardous because they're small enough to penetrate deeply into the lungs to the level of the blood vessels, where they can cross into the circulation and cause inflammation at the cellular level. The American Heart Association has released multiple statements after review of available evidence stating that there is a causal relationship between PM2.5 exposure and cardiovascular morbidity and mortality. What does that mean? Wildfire PM2.5 exposure causes harm to the heart, lungs, and blood vessels and raises your risk of heart disease, stroke, or heart attack. 
So how much does it take to be harmed? A large cohort study across Europe looking at pollution exposure more broadly showed a dose-dependent increase in lung cancer for increasing levels of PM10 and concluded that there was no safe level of exposure. A similar effect was seen for PM2.5, but it didn't quite reach statistical significance in this study. The effects of wildfire smoke exposure on the cardiovascular system are striking. Inhaled PM2.5 particles lodge in alveoli, the smallest portions of the lung, and start an inflammatory cascade that causes inflammation, oxidative stress, platelet dysfunction, and increased clotting, as well as decreased heart rate variability, which is an excellent measure of recovery and the health of your general physical state. Wildfire PM2.5 exposure has been shown to increase blood pressure, decrease blood vessel compliance, and cause atherosclerosis, which is an accelerated aging process of blood vessels. In individuals who already have heart disease, wildfire smoke exposure causes instability in plaques in the coronary and carotid blood vessels, and that leads to an increased incidence of heart attacks and strokes when wildfire smoke is present. Quote, A recent American Heart Association scientific statement estimated that the risk of these outcomes increases by 1-2% to 2% for short-term exposure and 5 to 10% for long-term exposure for every 10 micrograms per meter cubed of PM2.5, end quote. That is no small change, and it is a risk that scales with exposure. This implies that short-term exposure to PM2.5 of 200 micrograms per meter cubed increases the risk of heart attack or stroke by 20 to 40%, and long-term exposure by 100 to 200% compared to baseline risk. Not surprisingly, wildfire smoke exposure is also associated with higher rates of respiratory illness, including higher rates of hospitalization for respiratory complaints. These increased risks are not just confined to those who already have lung disease. Rates of acute respiratory illness, including pneumonia and new-onset asthma, are higher during smoke exposure. And interestingly, wildfire smoke exposure seems to be associated with a higher risk of death in those who contract COVID-19. Whether wildfire smoke is more or less hazardous than other sources of PM2.5 pollution is apparently more difficult to discern. It seems clear that the compounds in wildfire smoke are generally more harmful than some other organic sources of PM2.5, for example, cat dander. The model most often used in the lab to simulate wildfire smoke is piping diesel exhaust fumes into patients' mouths as this most closely replicates the particle size and gas composition of wildfire smoke. This should certainly dispel any notion that wildfire smoke is somehow safer because it's of, quote, natural origin. It's not uncommon to see PM2.5 concentrations during the summer of 45 in Mexico City, 50 to 60 in downtown Chicago and New York City, and 150 to greater than 500 micrograms per meter cube in areas downwind of wildfires in California and Oregon. If equivalent to diesel exhaust, it is certainly the case that wildfire smoke produces areas of exposure that are 5 to 10 times as concentrated as the worst diesel exhaust. Second question. What is considered safe air quality, and can we rely on the published EPA standards? The 2021 World Health Organization Air Quality Guidelines 
recommend limiting PM2.5 exposure to an average daily of 5 micrograms per meters cubed or less, and they recommend that we limit our exposure to 24-hour levels greater than 15 micrograms per meter to just 2 to 3 days per year. These are the levels deemed necessary to limit, quote, non-accidental death, end quote, due to PM2.5 air pollution. It's notable that in 2019, 99% of the world's population lived in areas that exceeded these limits. They are aspirational guidelines. Should we instead rely on the U.S. Environmental Protection Organization, or EPA? AirNow.gov publishes a, quote, air quality index, end quote, or AQI, that gives an air quality forecast for both particulate and ozone pollution specific to your location. These are forecasts issued in the afternoon for the following day, and they offer a nowcast that, if you're interested to know, doesn't actually reflect current air quality. These forecasts rate air pollution levels on a scale that I'm going to march through and give recommendations for precautions and activity at each level. Green or good air quality, PM 2.5, 0 to 50. Air quality is satisfactory, and air pollution poses little or no risk. Yellow or moderate air quality, PM 2.5, 51 to 100. Air quality is acceptable. However, there may be a risk for some people, particularly those who are unusually sensitive to air pollution. Orange or unhealthy for sensitive groups. PM 2.5 101 to 150. Members of sensitive groups may experience health effects. The general public is less likely to be affected. Red or unhealthy. PM 2.5 151 to 200. Some members of the general public may experience health effects. Members of sensitive groups may experience more serious health effects. Purple very unhealthy. 201 to 300. Health alert. The risk of health effects is increased for everyone. Maroon or hazardous. PM 2.5, 301 and higher. Health warning of emergency conditions. Everyone is more likely to be affected. These levels also include activity recommendations. For example, when the air quality is listed as unhealthy for a PM2.5 of 151 to 200, the EPA advises that sensitive groups reduce prolonged or heavy exertion. Quote, it's okay to be active outside, but take more breaks and do less intense activities. Watch for symptoms like coughing or shortness of breath. People with asthma should follow their asthma action plans. If you have heart disease, symptoms like palpitations, shortness of breath, or unusual fatigue may indicate a serious problem. Now, if you've been playing along, you'll recognize that these levels are 1. Arbitrary round numbers, and 2. Don't reflect the science on air pollution that we've covered so far. A PM 2.5 level of 100 does not reflect a good day to be active outside. Indeed, the national standards set by the EPA for PM2.5 targets an annual average of 12 micrograms per meter cubed with a 24-hour maximum of 35 micrograms per meter cubed. If you want to know how they developed this scale, you can dive into the Air Quality Index reporting link in the show notes, section 2, 
a one. But if you trust me to interpret it, the TLDR here is that there's no scientific basis for the selected levels. Given that the health risks of exposure to air pollution are dose-dependent, and risk increases are seen for every increase of 10 micrograms per meter cubed average exposure, we can likely conclude that there is, quote, no safe level, end quote, of PM2.5 exposure, and we should limit our exposure as much as possible to this pollutant. Question 3. At what level of PM2.5 exposure do the benefits of exercise outweigh the risks of exposure? Newsflash. There are known benefits to regular cardiovascular exercise. There are known risks to PM2.5 exposure. Could the benefits outweigh those risks? The literature on the short-term effects of exercising in bad air are mixed, with some studies showing immediate harm and some no change. At best, it might be okay, but it's probably not good for you in the short term. What about long-term effects? The best research to date on the topic seems to be a study published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that is entitled Effects of Air Pollution and Habitual Exercise on the Risk of Death, a Longitudinal Cohort Study. See show notes. This study followed 384,130 adults from 2001 to 2016 and evaluated their exercise habits by questionnaire, and they followed their air quality exposure using satellite data and a variety of sources to track their health outcomes and risk of non-accidental death. They divided air quality average exposures into low, moderate, and high. The upper bound of low was 22.4%, moderate ranged from 22.4 to 26, and high was anything greater than 26. And they characterized activity by intensity. Outcomes were not surprising. Across each level of physical activity, greater exposure to air pollution resulted in a greater probability of death. Across each level of air pollution, greater baseline levels of physical activity resulted in a lower likelihood of death. Inactive people in areas of great pollution had the highest risk of death, while the most active people living in areas of lowest pollution had the lowest risk of death. Notably, even for those in areas of high pollution, greater levels of exercise still resulted in lower levels of death. Additionally, the risk reduction from, quote, high vigorous, end quote, exercise, namely running, was greater than the risk increase from being in poor air quality. The outdoors athlete in me wants to take that information and literally run with it. But there's some limitations here. First, the study called a high AQI anything over 26, a level that the EPA AQI calls low, and it encompasses a huge range of possible values. Second, while they were doing this study, the air quality in Taiwan was fairly good and improving. The worst air quality days were just over 50 micrograms per meter cubed for PM2.5, and this occurred only on a handful of days during their 15-year period. It's good to live on an island. Further, while exercise reduced the risk of death regardless of the ambient air quality, higher PM2.5 levels increased risk of death regardless of activity level. What this tells us is that these are independent risk factors for our health. It's better to be active, it's better to breathe clean air, and exercise doesn't protect against the effects of air pollution. The common sense implications of this are clear. 
If your job is to make public policy, you need to inform the public that they should exercise as much as possible while reducing exposure to bad air. For recreational and industrial athletes, however, the implications are these. First, given the option, you should avoid exerting yourself in bad air at any level. The effects of air quality on mortality are more pronounced over about 26 PM 2.5 in this study, so that might be a reasonable cutoff to consider avoiding outdoor exercise. Second, if you want to or have to exert yourself outside when the air quality is worse than 26 to 30 micrograms per meter cubed, you should take steps to mitigate harms and reduce your exposure, like using a filtering mask. Question four. If I have to be out and active in smoky air, can I protect myself from the harms of wildfire smoke? Thankfully, for those who have to be exposed to wildfire smoke, or those who want to exercise outdoors despite poor air quality, there are interventions that can help to reduce exposure to PM2.5, PM10 particulate found in wildfire smoke, and exhaust fumes. To begin with, A standard surgical mask, a homemade cloth mask, or bandana, even if it's wet, doesn't protect significantly against PM2.5 or PM10 particles. Dust masks, which can look similar to N95s but that are not marked with the NIOSH indication, are also ineffective. Most N95 masks are also not effective at filtering gases, I'm talking about ozone or volatiles from burning diesel fumes. A well-fitting N95 mask will filter 95% of particles of 0.3 microns or larger. So in theory, if the PM2.5 is 100 micrograms per meter cubed, the effective exposure with a good N95 fit would be 5 micrograms per meter cubed worth of exposure. I'd say this assumes that the mask fits tightly and without a leak. As with a leak, they're significantly less effective, so if you have a beard or your mask isn't fitting well, you're just not being protected. N100 or P100 masks offer the protection that the number would suggest. A hundred, no, sorry, 99.97%. However, for any level of physical activity, they're impractical as they make it too darn difficult to breathe. Respirator-type masks with replaceable filters are effective also, and they do make it easier to get a better fit, but the surface area of rubber material against the face and the weight of the unit makes them difficult to wear for vigorous activity. Now, some N95 products have an exhalation valve, which can improve the work of breathing when wearing these masks. With regards to COVID, CDC says that a NIOSH-approved N95 filtering facepiece respirator with an exhalation valve offers the same protection to the wearer as one that does not have a valve. But I can't find any data on whether or not they protect equally against smoke. The theoretical concern is that a valve that doesn't close immediately and securely will allow you to breathe in smoke. Some 3M product materials I dug up state that, quote, the purpose of a respirator's exhalation valve is to reduce the breathing resistance during exhalation. The exhalation valve does not impact a respirator's ability to provide respiratory protection. But I don't know that I consider the manufacturer to be a trusted source. I've personally used several N95 products while exercising and can attest to their efficacy regarding subjective symptoms of smoke exposure. To be effective for high output use, the respirator needs to have a snug fit, 
have a structure that prevents it from collapsing around the face when you're inhaling vigorously, should ideally have exhalation valves, and should have a replaceable filter or components, or should be low cost overall. The best mask that I've found so far, and I have no affiliation here, is the Respro Ultralight Mask, which uses replaceable filters that conform to the EU equivalent of standard N95, that's ENI149, and have a structure that prevents collapsing around the face. They have high-quality exhalation valves that seal quickly, and they have multiple sizes for different faces. They are not comfortable, but they are the best that I've found, and you can wear them while exercising. They do make charcoal-impregnated versions of these filters, which reportedly can protect against volatile gases, but there's no standard for that kind of protection. If you're interested in checking out these masks, look for a link in the show notes. I don't make any money if you click it. Question 5. If I stay inside, am I actually safer? A study of homes in wildfire smoke found that between 33% and 75% of PM2.5 can infiltrate into a home. Observed differences are likely due to construction and sealing of the house. Thankfully, running indoor air purifiers in homes reduces infiltrated PM2.5 by 48 to 78%. So if we assume that it's 100 micrograms per meter cubed outside, with low infiltration and good filtration, indoor PM2.5 can be reduced to a level of 7 to 8. This has been reproduced more broadly using crowdsource data. Indoor is definitely better than nothing. Some homes and commercial spaces are equipped with HVAC systems, which have high-quality HEPA filters installed. In most homes, however, this filtration will be active only when heating or cooling is activated, which is only about 20% of the time. Commercial buildings are more likely to have constant HVAC due to the need to ventilate larger spaces, and if there's high-quality filtration, this can be of benefit. Want to bother your local gym? Ask them the MERV rating of their HVAC filter. MERV is the minimum efficiency reporting value, and it's the standard used to rate filtration in these systems. And only MERV values above 11 are tested for their ability to remove particles smaller than 3 microns, including PM2.5. MERV values of 13 to 16 are the minimum necessary to filter smoke PM2.5 at any reasonable rate. If you want to nerd out, CDC has a good handout on MERV, and I'll link it in the show notes. If you plan to exercise in a home space, the best plan is to make a, quote, clean room. This is a designated space with minimal infiltration, i.e. it's well-sealing against the outdoors, and good filtration. You want to find an air filter for this space that uses a HEPA filter, not ozone generation, to filter that air. The filtration rating for small filters uses a standard rating system called CATR, and this rating is calculated for three sizes of particles, including pollen, dust, and tobacco smoke. You want a filter with a CADR, that's C-A-D-R, for tobacco smoke that is rated at least two-thirds of the size of your clean room. For example, a CADR of 200 for a 300-square-foot room. If you want to get really nerdy, you can confirm your success with an indoor air quality monitor, and I'll link to several. 7. Summary That was a lot, so let's break it down to the points that I think we should be walking away with. First, wildfire smoke is bad for you and harms your heart and lungs in both the short and long term and hurts them more the more smoke there is. 
Second, wildfire smoke is going to remain a persistent problem in the West for at least the next decade. Sorry. Third, there is no safe level of exposure to wildfire smoke, and the EPA AQI levels can't be trusted. If you have to pick a level of acceptable exposure to PM2.5, it's probably below about 30 micrograms per meter cubed. Or at least that's the level at which exercise benefits may outweigh any risk that you're accruing. Fourth, given the choice, don't exercise in even moderately smoky air. Exercising inside is likely better, particularly if you can ensure good air filtration. Last, if you do need to exercise or work outside, a well-fitting N95 type mask is a good idea, and exhalation ports will make your life better. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to Wilderness Medicine Updates. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review on iTunes, or more importantly, share this podcast with someone who might appreciate it. You can connect with us by emailing me at wildernessmedicineupdates at gmail.com or at wildmedupdates on Twitter. Until next time, stay fit, stay focused, stay ready, and have fun. Wilderness Medicine Updates is written, hosted, and produced by Patrick Fink and D. All rights reserved. Our music is produced by Nathan Fink. Any information included on this podcast is for your education only and does not constitute medical advice and does not constitute any patient relationship between you, our listener, and any of the producers, hosts, or guests of the podcast.